From Tragedy to Triumph. A welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard each day rather than being satisfied with just a little religion. Now that's a shallow substitute for giving God our best. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. For many people, the story of Elizabeth Elliot starts with the day that they heard about her husband and four other missionaries dying at the hands of a tribal people in Ecuador. This series is a look into the life of their wives. So stay with us for the next few weeks. Today, a couple of Gateway to Joy programs, number 187 and 188. We'll be hearing from Della Healy, a friend of Elizabeth Elliot, a writer who traveled to Ecuador, worked on a screenplay related to Elizabeth, and has insights on these five ladies. We'll be hearing from her a couple times today. First, though, it's Gateway to Joy 187, as Elizabeth Elliot introduces you to Barbara Udarian. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking today with another one of the five widows of Ecuador. We have sort of lived with that name for many years. And my guest is Barbara Udarian, and I think of a story that she told me about when she was invited to speak in a church and the pastor sort of raced in breathless at the last minute and as they were going up the aisle asked her to repeat her name and she said I'm Barbara Udarian. Well he was quite flustered and when he got up to introduce her he said he was very happy that we have with us this evening Mrs. Barbarian. <laughs> now I, I want to tell you Barb that since you've known me more than 25 years you're allowed to call me Betty on this program. My Thank listeners you, <laughs> know me as Elizabeth, but um, anybody who has known me more than 25 years can call me Betty, so feel free. Don't worry about that. I want to ask you, Barb, what led to your being asked to speak? I had been a missionary with the Gospel Missionary Union, and being a uh, one of the widows of the five men, uh, the church was interested in, in the story, and I, I went there to speak. And you... Were, had been at that time in Ecuador for how many years? Can you remember? We had been there about three and a half years, serving with the Hebrew Indians at that at that time. Barb, would you tell us a little bit of your own background? What made you want to be a missionary, or was it just Raj's idea? Oh, no. When I was but a child, I accepted the Lord when I was five years old. And I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was... Shortly after that, that I began began to uh, think about being a missionary. I really didn't want to be. I was always the quiet, afraidy cat, middle middle kid in our family, and I couldn't believe God would speak into my heart. I remember how I used to put uh, a pillow over my head, and it seemed like I could shut out the voice of God uh, during my growing up years, and um, I didn't realize at the time how important it is to listen to God. And not to shut him out, but finally God in his goodness uh, sent me to Kentucky to work for a summer. And it was down there that working with the little um, children under the Scripture Memory Mission that I realized that God did 
really want me to serve. And, and I loved working with the children, and, and that's where I gave my, my um, heart full-time to God. I didn't care where, I didn't care when, I didn't care how God sent me. I just wanted to go. And how old would you have been then? I was about 20 at that uh -huh. time. Mm -hmm. Had you met Roger Udarian? I had not. So tell mm -hmm. us that story. Well, from um, Kentucky then, I went back home to Mich Michigan and then on to Northwestern at, uh, in Minneapolis. Went to school there, and it was while I was at Northwestern that I met Roger. He had just come home from the war and um, was attending school there, too. Am I right that he was a paratrooper in World War II? Yes, he was. And you met him at Northwestern. At Northwestern. It was while he was in England, just before he made the jump uh, over uh, the Rhine, that um, he came to know the Lord as his Savior. And at that time, um, everything was different. He just, it, his whole complete life was changed, and all he wanted to do was serve God. What attracted you to him on that campus? Oh, there was lots of things. He was tall. He was good-looking. Uh, the first time I saw him, uh, he was in, still in his paratroop uniform because he had just—he was just on his way home, and uh, I thought that he was about the most handsome man I had ever seen in my life. And then he came back to school. We were in the same prayer band. I was attracted, I, I believe, by his dedication, his um, perseverance in in searching out, in uh, looking to God, in trusting Him, in. Um, being what I thought a man of God should be. In other words, you were convinced that he was deadly serious yes, about doing the will of God. Yes. Now, we'll skip over and find yourselves in the jungle of Ecuador working with what tribe? With the Hebrew Indians, the former headhunters who are now known as the Shwar Indian. Uh, and we worked there for three and a half years with them. They weren't just head hunters; they were also head shrinkers, they weren't were they? They were head shrinkers, yes. Famous for some secret formula whereby they could shrink human heads to the size of an orange with the hair still attached and the features still discernible, recognizable. That's right, uh -huh. yes. Mm -hmm. Did you have any misgivings about going into that kind of a situation in the jungle? No, I did not. Um, I knew there were other missionaries in there. There had been no killings amongst the missionaries by the Indians. Um, we just heard good reports, although there were a lot of hard things to go in, and yet um, we look forward to that. We look forward to serving God uh, amongst this this group of Indians. I barely met Raj. I guess I saw the two of you on a few occasions, but not in any way that sit sit down and talk with him. But I can just remember that my impression was that this man was absolutely serious and sold out to God. I don't mean humorless, but that his purpose was firm. And I can remember Nate Saint. Uh, he was the MAF pilot in Ecuador who served all of our stations. And I can remember Nate talking about Raj and the way Raj opened up a new area of the Shuar Indians. Is that, isn't that correct? Or was it Shuar? Or I'm, uh, I'm mixing up Hebrews and Shuars. No, that's right. The Shuar is the, their own name for the people. And and as uh, Hebrew meant um, barbarian and uneducated, they, when they realized what the term was, they uh, insisted upon their own name. But he did um, go down to the Atshuar, which was a cousins of the Shuar, and uh, was able to open up a station down there. And uh, as a result, the chief 
and nearly his whole tribe came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. He was the first missionary into that area, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, I should say that he and Frank Drown went together. Mm -hmm. Frank had tried to go before, but he was uh, sent back. Roger was the first one to meet the uh, Ochwater chief. Roger was called out to work on a hospital. He stayed with Nate and Marge Saint. Uh And it was while he was there that he became acquainted with Jim and Ed and and Pete. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just the last minute that he was um, asked to join the group, although he was in the planning sessions for all those weeks. I remember that Nate came out to talk to us about this guy, Roger Darian, whom none of us knew very well, but he had nothing but the highest praise. And he said, I think he's the man that we need to complete the team for Operation Alka. And so Nate flew each of these men, Raj and Ed and Pete and Jim, uh, one at a time into the Kodadai River to a little sand strip. And this story is told in my book called Through Gates of Splendor. Operation Alka ended in what the world would call a disaster. All five of the men speared to death. How do you feel about using that term disaster, Barbara? I believe it was Ed's father, Mr. McCauley, that, that said, um, had a little tract on uh, from tragedy to triumph. And I think that best describes the whole Operation Alka outcome, that God used it. It was for the glory of God that um, it came out as it did. Many souls have been saved. The Alkas um, have come to know uh, God, and many other people have been challenged to go to the field through it. So I would say it's a triumph. Can you think of any of those people? Do you know some stories of people who have gone out, any one specific person that comes to mind, or people that have told you when you've gone out to speak of how your husband's Well, I, I believe the most interesting one to me, I, there's just been a myriad of people. I, but I was in Texas and found, uh, met a cowboy chaplain, and I was very um, interesting uh, uh, when he, he said that it was through the um, seeing the film that he eventually became saved and eventually served the Lord. And today he's a, a cowboy chaplain and uh, has brought many of the uh, cowboys to the Lord through through being their chaplain. Isn't that something? I, I've never heard of a cowboy chaplain before, but it's wonderful. And everywhere I go, people tell me just really thrilling stories. So often they will preface it by saying, oh, I know you hear this everywhere you go, and you're tired of hearing all these stories. Who could get tired of hearing the ways in which God has turned a tragedy into triumph? My guest today was Barbara Udarian, widow of Roger Udarian, of Ecuador, South America. From Tragedy to Triumph, Part 1, featuring Barbara Udarian. More insights on Barbara now from Della Healy, a friend of Elizabeth. Della, what else can you tell us about Barbara? I remember how pretty she was. And I remember she was soft because she had this lovely blonde hair. When I was in Ecuador, I was in Ecuador twice. And in the jungles, I really wanted to know about Roger, of course. And there was a love story, a real love story, like Elizabeth and Jim. All of them were, actually. 
they were ten extraordinary people, five extraordinary women, and five extraordinary men. Thank you, Della Healy, the writer and friend of Elizabeth. Right now, uh, Della, maybe you could tell us about our next guest on this series, From Tragedy to Triumph, Part 2. Ed McCauley's wife, okay. Mary Lou. Right. Mary Lou. Uh, okay, yeah. what was she like? She was she was just wonderful. I I remember now where she really impressed me because when we went to Virginia Beach, and so we all went to see uh, 1776. So we had a really good time, and it was just grand. I mean, I couldn't believe I'm sitting here in the audience in the seats with these women that I so admired over these years. And but she had a, a good sense of humor too, and. Uh, laughed a lot. Okay. They were all extraordinary women. Writer Della Healy. Well, let's hear more on Gateway to Joy 188. Mary Lou McCulley. I think of your husband, Ed, Ed McCulley. He was what we called a BMOC when I was a student at Wheaton College back in the 40s. He was a big man on campus, or he was a BTO, a big-time operator. I was just a TWO teeny-weeny operator. And I, I know that all the girls were just swooning over Ed. He was what we used to call a dreamboat in those days. I think they would have called him a hunk more recently, and there's probably something much more recent than that. I'm very outdated on vocabulary. But Ed was tall, handsome, a football player, a track star. He was a musician. He was the president of his class. He won the championship in the Hearst Oratorical Contest in which there were 20,000 entrants, I understand, and Ed McCulley took first place. I mean, he was something. And as I recall, he, he really wanted to be a politician. He was going to go into law school. And we didn't have any trouble imagining Ed McCulley as president of the United States someday. Well... I've given you my impressions of Ed McCulley. You tell me what yours were, Mary Lou, when you first met him. Well, those were my impressions, and he actually swept me off my feet. But uh, along with all that, he also, he was very real, he, and he loved people. He loved life, and even though he wasn't one that you would look at and think he's going to be a missionary, or he has this tremendous dedication or commitment, he did have it sort of kept it hidden, didn't they, in, in well, some ways? It's it was something that grew with him. I think at Wheaton, he did not have the dedication to the mission field. He was a Christian, and but it was through the years. Well, it weren't, it weren't a lot of years, but it was something that grew with him. Yes, it was. I would agree. He was he was very real, and he wasn't going to put on any kind of a front. And I have to confess that I was one of many who thought that Ed McCulley was not very spiritual because we had a hard time putting together spirituality with the tremendous gifts and popularity that Ed had and realized later how wrong we were. And I often look back on my college years and when I hear the stories of what's happened to certain people, they, so many are so much better than you thought they would be and others turn out to be sort of failures that you wouldn't have expected. But Ed had us fooled and when he went to Ecuador People were just amazed. Here was this man with all this talent. Now, why would he want to, quote, throw away, unquote, all those talents in an unknown corner of the jungle? Obviously, it was the Lord working with him. A good deal of it was the influence of your 
husband, Jim Elliott, when they were at Wheaton, and I'm sure Jim's prayers, his folks had given him to the Lord. After his death, his mother wrote a poem, A Gift is a Gift is a Gift. She'd given him to the Lord, although she was surprised that he became a missionary also. Uh, It was basically through the reading of Nehemiah that he made the final decision to go to the mission field. Do you know how or what, what it was in that book? Just the fact that Nehemiah was called to restore the people, restore the wall and bring back God's people. And he was obedient. Right, mm-hmm. and he was obedient. And uh, he felt like he needed to wholeheartedly serve the Lord. And uh, he had said in a letter to Jim that he felt like he w- it would be a thrill to preach the name of Jesus Christ to a pe- people that had never heard it. And then a lot of people don't know that Ed and Jim went to a small town in southern Illinois, and that was when I first met Ed. He and Jim had been there, and they had a radio program. They worked with kids, poor kids, lived along the river, had a club with them. They did some young life type work. Yes, that was preparation for foreign Mm -hmm. missionary work, wasn't it? Now, Ed had actually begun law school, hadn't he, when he graduated from Wheaton? Yes, he had finished the first year of law school, and it was during the summer. He'd taken a job as a night clerk in a hotel, specifically so he could study the Bible. And it was during that time that he was reading Nehemiah, decided he needed to go to the mission field, made a special trip to visit each one of his professors to tell them, and they too were shocked that he was going to throw away his talent. Not all of them. Some of them commended him. And that was, uh, that's when I met Ed, was at that time. And I remember you and Ed lived in the same house where I had lived when I was learning Spanish, the Adiases, mm-hmm. in Quito, by the immersion method. We learned Spanish. They didn't speak any English. They couldn't so. speak a word of English, so you either sink or swim there. And I know that you both swam. No. Yes. <laughs> Ed swam, and I waited. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you went to Where? Then we went to Shandia, the mission station at Shandia, where Jim and Pete, who were still single missionaries, were. Our plan was to settle there and then the men be available to make trips. And uh, although we had a few roadblocks, the the station, as you remember, was, uh, there was a flood and the station was a good deal of it washed away with the Yeah, flood. they had already laid the foundation for, for your our house, house right. and, and, and then it, it was all went away. down the mm-hmm. river and eventually down the Amazon. But we we went to Shandia. We felt like that was still where we were to go and just build ourselves. The Indians built us a bamboo house, and we lived there for two years. Part of the time, Jim and Pete were there, and then Jim left, of course, and you and Jim were married, and you started another station, and Pete was there. I was there when Pete was quite ill with malaria. Then when Pete left to marry Olive, and then when you folks, you and Jim, came back to Shandia, uh, the way opened up to go to another, to open up a new mission station at Arahuno, which happened to be one of the closest, sta- the closest station to where the Alcas lived. We started by going over on weekends. That's when I got acquainted with Nate because I got very air sick and he became my friend. <laughs> I became his friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we moved over there while you and Jim stayed at Shandia. Yes, Nate Saint was the pilot of Missionary Mm -hmm. Aviation Fellowship that served all of our jungle stations. And am I correct that Ed was the one that was with Nate when he discovered the Alka houses? As I remember, he was. uh I'm pretty sure that's true. They were Mm -hmm. flying over the jungle, and they had a little bit of extra time, and mm -hmm. Nate had many times tried to find Mm -hmm. some inhabited Alka houses. I think he'd 
many times seen abandoned ones, but on this occasion, to their enormous excitement, they actually found mm -hmm. a house where there was smoke coming through the roof and there were some naked people out there. There was no question about it that these were Alcas because the other Indians in the jungle wore clothes. And so Ed became one of the participants in Operation Alka, and he and Jim Elliott, my husband, would take turns flying with Nate each week. Nate would do the flying, and either Ed or Jim would drop the gifts. And I think you had something to do with some of the gifts that were dropped, didn't you, Mary Lou? Well, we put together pots with trinkets in them, and we tied machetes onto the string that was dropped from the plane whatever we thought the Alcas would be interested in. Yes, Nate had invented an incredible method of lowering a bucket to the ground as the plane circled, and I'm told that aeronautical engineers had studied his plans for the thing and said that it would never work, but it did work. It took an extremely skillful pilot to do that. Now, during this Operation Alka, as it was called, over the period that these gifts were being dropped, Mary Lou, wasn't there an alert in your station out of Huno and the Indians, the Kichwas came and told you that an Alka had been there? Yes, there was. Uh, in fact, it was at a time when Ed was at Puyupungo, I believe, and uh, the Kichwas said that they somebody had seen an Alka right at the end of our path. So there you were, supposedly, all by yourself in the jungle with... <laughs> How many children Two at that children. point? Two Steve little children. Two little children. Ages. Uh, three and one. Mm -hmm. And I imagine. I, we let Ed know, and had Ed and Nate came back immediately. Nate picked yes. up Ed, and he came back. And they walked up and down the airstrip, calling out the few phrases that they knew, just in case the Alcas were still hiding. Not really fearing them, thinking that this would be somebody that maybe had run away, as we had heard of others that had run away from the tribe. Yes. And so finally, it was in January of 1956 that the men felt that the time had come to meet these Alcas, these Indians, face to face on the ground after dropping all these gifts. And it was in your house at Arahuno that they met for the last time to pray and go over their plans, right? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that prayer meeting? No, I remember singing the hymn that has become well known, We Rest on Thee. I remember Jim and Ed getting on a scale because they both wanted to be the first one to go in and Ed telling them 15 pounds would make a difference, and Ed wasn't quite 15 pounds more than Jim, so Ed won the toss. <laughs> I remember the excitement, and yet we'd had lots of planning meetings where things were very serious, but this was expecting a great thing. Well, you know, most of our listeners know the rest of the story, that all five of these men were killed by the Indians to whom they had gone to take the gospel. Mary Lou, just very briefly in this last less than a minute that we have, can you tell us, bring us up to date a little bit? Where have you been? I did return to Ecuador for six years, had a home for missionary children, which was great while my children were young. And then I felt the Lord leading me back to the States. And your baby was born? My son Matthew was born uh, a month after the men were killed, and he's he wants me to say he's been a great joy, <laughs> so here's my chance. <laughs> I heard him he has. That. He's been very much like his father. And his, he and his wife and two children live just five miles from me. So I babysit his children quite a bit. And you have how many grandchildren? Four. Just four. Thank you so much. My guest today was Mary Lou McCulley, widow of Ed McCulley, who was killed in Ecuador in 1956. Thank you so much, Mary Lou. Gateway to Joy 188 from Tragedy to Triumph, Part 2. 
Well, it looks as though our time together is coming to an end, but thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, along with you as you uh, took a walk, wherever we found you today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org for lectures, talks, devotionals, videos, gateway to joy, programs, and more. One reviewer said... Excellent, concise, practical, timeless, Bible-based teaching and encouragement for every phase of life. Don't waste your time with all the fluffy teaching out there. Well, thank you very much for those kind words. A friend, thank you for joining us today. But until next time, may God remind you daily that you're loved with an everlasting love. That verse, in fact, is to be found in Jeremiah 31, verse 3. And underneath are those everlasting arms. You can find that in Deuteronomy 33:27. Those of you that listen to me know that I quote these two verses for you every day.